You gonna turn the TV? You gotta turn the TV off. Now, when you speak, you gotta speak to the mic so people can hear you. Otherwise, it's all for naught. Well, how's she gonna speak? She gonna sit right there beside you. You think y'all can share a microphone? Huh? Do you want to turn the phone off? I yeah, I guess that would be wise. I mean, anybody got a pee? Do we? I mean, defecate. You trying to figure out how to cut it off? I don't even see to turn it off. Oh God! All right, well, just don't worry about it. This is very personal work for me. Politics. I believe I was called to tell my story, use my voice, be a voice for the community, to speak to and for a community of people that's been ignored, denied, over relationships, religion. This is my life's work. I want to use words to uplift, heal, inspire, encourage, do something different. Something different. Every Monday at 10. You did all this worrying me about doing the podcast. Now you can't I sit down. I ain't worrying you about doing You asked podcast. me like three times. When are we doing it? What day are we going to do it? What time? You not ready to sit down yet? She need her glasses. Yes, I can see the clock. To speak. Now you gotta speak in the mic. How many times you gonna say that? <laughs> turn, turn your chairs this way so that you can be talking towards the microphone. What you looking for? I want to be able to see that cloud. Oh my goodness. Okay, so before I start, I do my little intro, so I'm a cuss three times, so I'm be looking all crazy when I when I say it. Y'all ready? Yeah, go ahead. Oh my. <laughs> I don't even know why I agreed to do this. You gonna chew that gum on the mic? No, just go ahead. Good day, thinkers, thought leaders, progressives, and dreamers. I am Craig the Writer Stewart, and this is so much to say. These are my thoughts in my voice about black shit, white shit, gay shit, and everything in between. Today, I have my parents on. And so I figured it would be a great time to have a conversation about sexuality in the black community. So I want to start with the story. A friend of mine in Atlanta shared with me, um, he's from South Carolina. You remember those dolls that, that, that was just like the head and it had the hair and it sat on like a pedestal? Right. Well, his sister had one of those when they were growing up. And he and his sister used to fight over this doll head. And so finally, his father just went out and bought him his own. And he loved this little doll. And so he put so much grease in the doll's hair, he couldn't even comb the, the doll doll's hair. Oh my God, now the phone ringing. If it rings, you can just hang it up. All right, so we're gonna try this again. So I was telling you about, you had something to say? No, oh. aren't you gonna start over? <laughs> so I was saying he couldn't even get the comb through the doll's hair so one night his father said to him you need to go down to the bathroom and wash that doll's hair out so you can comb it and just the story in and of itself it made me smile because 
you don't typically have black fathers that are that supportive of a boy playing with a doll, let alone saying to him, listen, you need to go down the, to, down the hall and wash the doll's hair out. So he looked down the hall and of course it was dark down the hall. And of course he wasn't trying to go down the hall by himself <laughs> in the dark. So he like looked down the hall, looked at his father, looked down the hall again. And his father said, come on. And so he got up, went down to the bathroom with him, sat on the side of the tub while he washed the doll's mm -hmm. hair out. And I just thought that that was really amazing because again, when you think about black families and sexuality, especially with little boys, you just don't get that kind of support from a father. So I want to start by talking about when I first told you, and then dad will come to you. But do you remember the conversation, like where you were, where I was, and all of that? Like when it happened? Well, I was in my room watching TV when you called and uh, after we had talked for a little while, you said you were gay. And we talked a few more, few more minutes, and then we got off the phone. But do you, you were in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta, and I was working for Hewlett Packard at the time. And I remember calling you because I was dating someone at the time. And if you remember, he wanted to cook Thanksgiving dinner. That was the first year that I lived in Atlanta. And you were coming down to visit for the first time after I, you guys had moved me to Atlanta. But that wasn't... The time that you called to tell me that you were gay, I don't think it had anything to do with us coming down for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was because what happened, this is in the book, you guys, and words never spoken. But what happened was you were coming down for the very first time after you guys moved me down after I graduated from college. And you and Ty, my nephew, were coming down to th for Thanksgiving. And I was dating someone and he had already said to me, well, listen... Since this is the first Thanksgiving that we've been together, let's, I want to cook. And so he had said he wanted to cook. And then you called and was like, well, hey, I'm coming down to Atlanta, da-da-da-da. And so I, that propelled me to call you from my job. I called you from work because I figured if the conversation became too serious, I could get off the phone and just be like, well, hey, I'm at work. I can't talk right now. So I called you. And I was telling you about... Now, who is this in the background with all of this noise? We're trying to record a show. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I can't even be great. He's sliding stuff he across the floor. He not hear you. Go to ahead. Let's uh, <laughs> see. Mm. So anyway, <laughs> I said to you, hey, I wanted, there's something that I want to tell you. And you was like, Lord, I hope it ain't got nothing to do with that job. Because I had just gone through the transition from like a couple other jobs. That was when I was working for Marta. And they had fired me. I said to you, no, it's not about a job. And you said, is it personal or professional? And I said, personal. And you said, is it about a man? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. Well, I can't that's, remember I'm telling you, that's today. what you said. And so you said, Lord, I was hoping, wishing, and praying that that wasn't so. And I said, well, I've been hoping, wishing, and praying too. And then you went on to say, well, why, why all of these years that you pretend that you were interested in all these girls that you were dating? And I said, well, I wasn't pretending like these were people that I, that I really was interested in, but I was trying to figure it out myself. And so my coworkers were in the background and they were like, is everything okay? Is everything okay? They came over my shoulder and you kind of laughed, but it was like one of those awkward laughs where I knew you weren't really okay with it. And you were like, no, everything is going to be okay. And you got off the phone. We got off the phone. Right. But what happened was two weeks went by. And at that point, this was the first year that I had lived in Atlanta. 
I had went to school in Virginia, right. but this was the first year that I was even further away from home. So you and I were talking on the phone like almost every day. And when I told you that on the call that day, it was about two weeks that went by. We talked, but it was very touch and go. Like you would call and leave a message at the house when you knew I was at work or when I would call you back. You'd say, oh, well, I'm cleaning up the kitchen or I'm cooking or I just got upstairs. I'm going to call you back. So it was real touch and go. And it went on like that for about two weeks. And then finally you called me. Dad, you going to I thought you called Gloria and said I was avoiding your calls or something. I may have talked to her. And I may have shut that out of my memory. I don't really remember that. But what I remember next happening was me, the guy that I was seeing at the time, and a couple friends were at my house. And we were sitting. Oh, my God. If he don't sit down. Craig, just go ahead. <laughs> Tell me about it. Anyway, the people listening are hear all this background noise. So, <laughs> so, so it anyway. Ain't professional, professional. What you mean it ain't professional? You professional. Know what I this mean. is professional, you know, professional. Whatever. <laughs> Tell about it, Terrell. So anyway, the next thing that I recall happening. Where are you going? Just. Keep talking. She getting you? up from the microphone. <laughs> Just keep talking. I'm going to move the trash can. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, so the next thing that I remember happening was... I had people over, and you called, and I looked down on the caller ID and saw your number, and I was like, hey, when I picked up the phone, I was like, hey... Family still go ahead, boy. So I saw you calling on my caller ID, and I looked over, and like I said, I had all of them over at the house because he was cooking, and I said, "Hey," and you were like, "Hey, is that how you answer phone? That how, what kind of way is that to answer the phone?" And so I remember you saying, "Look, you can either have Thanksgiving with those people, or you can have Thanksgiving with your family." And I was just like, wait, those people? What do you mean, those people? Them. I'm not trying to meet any of them. And like, you just kept using that pro, the pronouns they and them to refer to my friends or whoever it was that I was dating and just this whole thing. And so I remember saying to you on the phone, Ma, you just want me to argue. You just want to incite an argument so you can have reason to be upset about something. I said, but... You can come down for Thanksgiving. I'll have Thanksgiving with you. I can just spend time with my friends later. And you said, well, listen, I'm telling you now, I don't want any problems. Don't be slick and show up with any of those people because you won't like it. <laughs> I don't remember all of that, but anyway. I do. I do remember telling you that I didn't want to um, bring that to Ty because he was so little then. I think he was like, what, eight or nine or ten. I don't remember how Ty was at the time. But you and were I like... I didn't want to introduce him to that lifestyle because it was uh -uh. so new for him. We say we got to have a conversation about lifestyle, but we'll come back to that. But but the thing is... Um, well, maybe lifestyle isn't the right word, but I not. didn't want him to be... Exposed, exposed at such an early age. I get that. early age to... Um, Something that he didn't know anything about. Or understand. Right. But here's the thing. So. But it's like with Tyreek and them, you know, it's no big deal to them. Maybe it's because when they were born and they've been raised around you, 
It's just, you you know, they all just used to it. Tyreek is my great nephew. He's now 13. But, um, it was different with Ty because, you know, you left and went away to school. So, um... You know, that was the difference with him. Well, I think with Ty, Ty, no, Ty wasn't eight because Ty is only, Ty is my nephew again, for those of you listening. Ty is only five years younger than me. So if I was living, if this was 1999, I was 23 at the time. So Ty was 18. Ty was 18. he wasn't that old when we came down. He was so. He was 18. He was not when we, uh, the first time we came down. I came to, I moved to Atlanta in 1998. This was in, I moved in May of 98, so this was the October, I mean, this was the Thanksgiving that followed. This was October 1999, I, I mean, know, November I 1999. When I graduated college, I was 22. So at that point, Ty was 17. And so when this happened, this, I, was, I was 23 and he was 18. But the point is this, um, you and I never spoke about it when... You guys came down for Thanksgiving. Right. And she got from the table again. Where are you going? (laughs) So we didn't talk about it when you came down for Thanksgiving. And probably another week or so went by after you had come back to Baltimore. And I called you one day. And I was just like, hey, so we never really talked when you came down here. So what is it that you really want to say? Like, what is the thing that really bother you? Because I believe that your mother always knows. Um, and I asked you, I said, so is it, is it that you're worried about what family will say or think or what friends will say or think? Because I had already dealt with that. Like once I had gotten to the point that I was clear about who I was, I had already divorce myself from the thought of what family and friends and people would think because I think that's a part of the courage that it takes in coming out and living your truth is not worrying or caring about what people are going to think at that point so I remember asking you that and you said well no I'm not thinking about that you said my fear is that you'll become sick like all of the other gay people that I know do you remember saying that you don't remember that either? Like you said to me, you said everybody that I know that's gay either died from AIDS or they have HIV. And I remember saying to you, well, that's my fear too, but I just always have to protect myself. And, and I said to you, I said, but that shouldn't be a fear or concern that you only have for me. You should also be concerned about the black women in your life, your sisters, your daughter, your nieces, because it's the number one killer of black women at that time from 23... I think it was 23 to 37 or something like that, the age range. Mm -hmm. So we had that conversation. But what I realized was that I couldn't force feed you, that I couldn't make you okay with it. Well, I do remember saying to you, if it took you 20-some years to admit that you were gay, how do you think I should have to accept it right away when you tell me? Right. And so that was what I, I realized, that I had to spoon feed you. So... Going forward, I decided that I wouldn't like talk to you about anybody that I was dating and I wouldn't try to force feed you and be like, oh, well, we went to the movies this weekend. Like, I didn't do all of that because I think sometimes gay people, once they declare that they're gay and they're ready to shout it from the mountaintops that they're gay, they want to force it down everybody's throat as opposed to just living their truth and just going and being. And so I didn't want to 
talk about it every time something came up. I wasn't going to exclude anything or cut off a part of my life and not share, but I didn't have to overshare either just to try to prove this point. So, Dad, with you, um, I'll come back to you, Ma. We ain't done. But <laughs> with you, I remember my last relationship was right before I moved to L.A., which was 2011. So, of course, this was 99 when I told my mother. And so it was 2012 when I told my dad. So by this time, I had written and produced a stage play called A Day in the Life that had sold out in Atlanta. It was about six gay characters. Tyler Perry had come to the show. And so when I was writing my first book, I would remember some of the things that my ex used to say, the last relationship that I had before I moved to LA. And he used to say to me, well, how is it that you sold out plays and you doing all of this stuff and you can't even tell your father that you're gay? Like, why are you afraid? Like, what is it? <laughs> what, are you, what, are, what are you afraid of? And I used to say to him, because I really didn't have the words then. And I was like, well, no, it's not that I'm afraid. I was like, I don't know why I haven't told him, but it's not that I'm afraid. And it wasn't until I moved to L.A. And a friend of mine in L.A. said to me one day, because she was in the car with me one day, I had gotten off the phone with you. And she had been in the car with me at times that I had been on the phone with my mother. And as soon as I hung up the phone with you, Dad, she said to me, you're still that hurt little boy. And I looked at her and said, what, what are you talking about? And if you read my first book, you'll understand what she was talking about. She was saying that I hadn't forgiven you for what had happened once you remarried. All of the things that, had, that you and I had conflict over once you remarried. And she said to me, she said, when you are on the phone with your mom, your voice is going up and down in inflections and you're excited and you're telling her about every little detail of your day and what's happening, what's going on. And then when you talk to your dad, your voice is like this. And she like did her hand, she like sliced her hand across the air like it was just monotone. It wasn't exciting at all. She said, you're still that hurt little boy. You need to forgive your father. And what I realized from that conversation was that I had made an unconscious decision to cut you out of all of the things that were important to me, which meant my coming out story. It meant me never really telling you about the stage play. You knew I had written a play, but I had never really gone into detail about what it was about. Right. Um, I think you knew it had sold out. But like my mother, she had come down to the plays and like, I mean, every production that I had, she came down like weeks before to help me make sure that I was eating and because I would just be going, going, going and going. But I never really went into detail. I mean, I had been in magazines and, and newspapers, and I hadn't shared any of that with you. And what I realized was that was my way of self-protecting. So when I was living in L.A., and I had come home for Christmas in 2011, you were about to take me to the airport so I could go back to L.A. And I remember um, I had gone upstairs to get like the rest of my stuff, and, and my mother had gone upstairs to use the restroom or something. And I whispered to her while you were sitting down here in the dining room, you don't even know this, you were sitting down here, and I said to her, I said, well, do you think I should tell my father now? Because many years before, Ma, you remember saying this, you said, well, when are you going to tell your father? And I said, well, I guess he'll find out one day he called me, and I'm living with somebody, and they answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, oh, that ain't no way to let nobody find out. 
anyway, so I wish you could see my dad's face. So when we were upstairs, I said to you, well, Ma, do you think I should tell him now? And you said, yeah, I think you should tell him. And so I was waiting for you to come back downstairs so I could tell him while you were sitting here. And I tell this story in my second book, which is one thing for certain, two things for sure. And so I said to you, I said, well, Dad, you know, there's something that I want to share with you about me and about my sexuality. And I said, and I realized why I hadn't told you. And I went on to tell you what my friend in L.A. had said to me. Do you remember what you said? No, I don't. But you basically said, I don't, I can't believe you guys don't remember. Maybe because it's more important or more significant to me, but... Because it's a long time ago and we're older. <laughs> you can't remember stuff. Keep on living, you get there. Right. Y'all remember oh, what no, y'all... he's there now. Are you trying to say I'm old? <laughs> that was a shady laugh. But, <laughs> but what you said to me was, you said, you're still my son. I'm always going to love you. Like, there's nothing that you can say that's going to change that. I felt really good about it. And then we went on to the airport. I jumped on my flight. It was a five-hour flight. I got to L.A. and there was a voicemail from you. And you went on to, to say, you're my son. There's never a reason why you can't come and talk to me. And again, that whole conversation is in the second book. But the reason that I wanted to have this conversation with the two of you, as I said before, is because there are so many parents, especially fathers, that struggle with their child's sexuality, especially a male child that identifies as gay. Um, but in this case, Dad, you were actually more accepting than my mother. Well, first of all, when I worked at the AFL, I was surprised with all the people I was working with that were lesbians. Mm -hmm. And to my surprise, they were more after the females, the uh -huh. males down there, uh -huh. to my surprise. It was an age group of about 25 years old, working way through college. I met a couple of guys down there. Something just hit me. What if my son was like it? Then what? Although I didn't, uh, you know, make fun of anybody, nothing like that, or, you know, having shame on him, showing shame about him, mm -hmm. the way. I try to be supportive to him, stay focused, and let's keep on working. But other bosses would get on him all the time and ride him back all the time and try to pluck their nerves. And then they'll lose it. Mm -hmm. So I try to calm them down. So when you actually said that that day in the dining room when I sat down with you and my mother and told you that I, that I was gay. And you said, well, I mean, I, I didn't know. And my, you were like, well, I don't know how you didn't. <laughs> you don't remember that? No, I, don't, I really can't remember. But you used to ask me when I was a kid, or, or like I remember different stages. You used to ask me. Right, I sure didn't. You would always say no. I don't like to keep asking me that. Well, because what happens is you're trying to figure it out yourself, and I right. think what happens also is there's a portion of you that believes you can control it, that you can manage the feelings, that you can suppress it. Hence, the closet, staying in the closet. Like you think that you can just figure it out, that you can overcome it, that you can master it. And so you do all of the things that you think you're supposed to do. Like like all of my friends were straight males when I was a kid. And so, you know, I was going out with girls because they were doing it. And I had, there was attraction. There was definitely attraction, but I knew that the larger part of me was gay. And I knew that it was something that I would not be able to control. But this conversation is also important because I think part of the reason that black people 
black families struggle with it so much is because of religion, because of the church, because of the Bible. For some reason, we as a people think that being gay puts you on the wrong side with God. And I just don't well, believe that. that's because the pastors preach that. And it's because, um, you know, most black people are in church and it's a big part of their life. And, you know, a lot of black families that go to church they treat the pastors almost like they are God and whatever they say is definitely right. true. And so it just turns up the family. And uh, so when they have children that are gay or let you know, lesbian or whatever, then, you know, they disown the children because right. they, the uh, pastor that told them that, you know, they going to hell and all that. But I just don't think God has made a person different from everybody else. And they destined to, to go to hell. Right. Because, I mean, you going through hell, especially in the black community, when you have to go through all the foolishness with black people, the way they treat um, the gay community. And so, um, what's interesting, though, too, is the way that black people handle gay people is very similar to the way that white folks handle black people. Right. And so what's really interesting to me is how we expect compassion or understanding or equality from white folks, but yet black folks don't want to give it to gay people. And going back to the conversation about the Bible, for me, I struggle with the Bible because I believe in God. I pray every single night. I'm, I'm more spiritual than anything. I'm not a religious person. I've never been religious, but I'm very much so spiritual. I speak to God throughout the day. I pray every single night on my knees, but I... I struggle with the Bible because the Bible has been rewritten. It was used at one time to control black folks and right. to justify slavery. Now we see black folks using church and the Bible to control other black folks. Some of the most educated black folks belong to these mega churches who never question the pastor, who never question leadership. Because again, they think that the act of questioning the, the church or the leader is blasphemous. But these educated people will park their luxury cars in the parking lot of these mega churches and leave their brains in the car. They go into this church, never ask any questions. They, they contributing money to love offerings. They contributing money to building funds. I read an article right after Eddie Long died and it was saying how this charity that the church, New Birth, has set up put him in a million dollar house. Not only had they put him in a million dollar house, but they had also given him a salary of like half a million dollars over the course of like four years. So it was basically a salary of like a hundred and some thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. But the reality is none of the members ever question where the money came from. They, they're basically funding this. They're basically funding this. Yeah, and it's because of their tithes and all these other um, ways they have of taking up a collection in church. But my thing is, I'm not going to a church where the pastor's going to preach that my child's going to go to hell because that's what the Bible says. You know, they're not getting my money. And uh, and then a lot of the pastors, you know, they live better than the, um, the members of the church. Right. And then the thing is, I see so many black folks sitting in church making these sacrificial offerings, mm -hmm. being seduced by these pastors to make sacrifices right. when a lot of times these black folks sitting in the church don't even have the money for their own mortgage don't have the money to send their children to college and so it is really 
it's really kind of sick to kind of see that happening. And a lot of times when you hear these pastors preaching, they're preaching against gay people. They're preaching against uh, the drug addict. They're preaching against the adulterer. My thing is when you leave a church, you should leave there feeling uplifted, feeling hopeful, feeling that you can overcome and not in the case of being gay, but you should be able to overcome whatever circumstance you're living, whatever it is that you're going through. And prayer is supposed to be your connection to God. And a lot of what they're preaching against, they're um, At, guilty of. They're participating in, exactly. And we've seen that with so many of these, these pastors right. of these different churches. I do want to say that I think all parents know that their children are gay or straight. And they act like they don't know it, but they know. I think they just don't want to really admit it. Because it's one thing to think it, but to be... Um, the reality of it. The reality that is definitely true is a whole different thing. It's better when the parents um, have a communication with their children because I know when you did the play and I used to sit out in that lobby. Uh -huh. She was sitting in the so lobby selling people. my greeting cards and things. And, go ahead. Um, this one guy, you know, he, he was just so sad because he was transgender. He wanted to get, you know, changed to be a woman. And he couldn't decide, and he didn't have nobody to talk to. And I tried to talk to him as much as I could. But, uh, you know, you just meet so many people who, you know, they would always say to me, I wish I could talk to my mother like Craig can talk to you. Well, even like when you used to come down for Thanksgiving to right. visit, remember my group of friends, if you read the first book, it's the Hedderbrinks. Like, when you come to my house for Thanksgiving, and they will come, and we will all sit around and talk, and remember, don't say anybody's right. name. But... I'm not. <laughs> you look like you get your lips ready. But, you know, several of them. One of them was from, um, his family is from Haiti. Right. And then my other friend who's from Houston. Mm -hmm. um, but they were all saying that they wish they had the kind of relationship that we had where they could actually talk to their parents. And I believe that there's a direct connection between how your parents handle you when you come out, and how you matriculate in the gay community. Right. I really believe that there is a connection between the HIV rate in the black gay community and how your your family, your parents, handle you. Whether, whether or not it's a tempestuous relationship or whether or not it's a very smooth one. I think that because, because I think what happens is often when you don't get that support and that love from your parents or from your family, you go off into the world looking for that Right. That kind of love and support from from strangers. When I was at the airport, this guy didn't get any support from his father because uh, his father didn't want to do with him when he found he was gay. And as time went on, his father decided to give in and give it a shot. He, he, he told his father to get married uh -huh. and want him to go in and um, pick out uh, um, a tuck. Uh -huh. So his father was all for that. So when they got to the place to pick out the tuck, he went on another side where the bridal showers were, and he was saying, "Why are you going over there?" He said, "I'm getting my dress." Oh, so the guy was going to wear a dress. Exactly. And so then and that's when his father lost it. Oh, and see, the thing is, when you think about um, homeless youth, like homeless homelessness is a serious problem in the gay community, and when you think about homeless youth as a whole, whether you're talking about straight kids, gay kids, whatever, the majority of the homeless youth are LGBTQ because their family disowned them. And a lot of times they end up putting them out of the house and they have nowhere, no place to go. Yeah, because you remember that um, young guy we met up in Philly? We can't, yeah. And I, he was living with an older guy 
just because he he was homeless because his mother they were from the islands that put yeah. him out and disowned him. Right. So I had so many sad cases. Right. I had done a book signing in Philadelphia a few years ago, and there was a young guy that came into a bookstore. It was a gay bookstore um, that I did the book signing in, and Giovanni's room. And he had come into the bookstore to get the free condoms because they used they leave free condoms in like a bowl, and so people can kind of come in and get free condoms if they can't afford them or whatever. And he heard me speaking, and he kind of stuck around and, and, and hung around to the end so he could talk to me privately. And he went on to say that he was a college student and that his family, as my mother said, was from the islands. I think they were, they were West Indian. And he had no place to go because once his mother found out that, that he was gay, she stopped paying for his tuition, and she contacted his other relatives, like her sister, which was his aunt, and told them to not deal with him. So he had no place to go. So he ended up living with some man that he didn't yeah, know, older some older man, and he was basically letting him stay with him for sex. And so I remember posing the question to him, are you guys using protection when you have sex? And he said, yeah, we do. I said, but what happens if he decides that you guys are no longer going to use protection? Like, how are you going to protect yourself? So again, it goes back to the point that I was saying a moment ago, the way that your family handles you and deals with you really plays a huge part in your success as a gay person, like how you move about in the gay community, how you socialize with other gay people, how you handle yourself in other relationships. You know, like it's, it's, a, it's a level of baggage that you end up carrying or not. Any final thoughts? Anything else you want to say? I think we kind of covered a lot. No, I think I said. You said a lot. Uh, mm, he tried it. Please be sure to share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, anybody that you think will benefit from this, from this show as well as the other ones as well. Well, you said what now? I said play a little bit of it. No, you said I was talking more than you did. Your father was saying we might have to do it over because you talk more than we did. Well, I mean, I am the host. Like, who's supposed to talk more? And then I asked you, I said, did you have something else that you want to say? No, I ain't got nothing to say. No comment. <laughs> I mean, like, what? I could have added about this guy that used to come to the house when we were little who was gay. What about him? Well, he used yeah, to, so to call himself like one. I forgot about it. He used to like who? One. My, your brother. Him, you know, he, they could be friends, but he, he liked women. But he just used to come to the house all the time. He was in, living in South Baltimore. Well, that's why I wanted to say something about and, um, my other side of the family. Y'all sure got a lot to say now that the camera, I mean, that the well, he wasn't you, on, He wasn't a family member, but, you know, he came so much he was like a family member. So anyway, you know, nobody really bothered him or picked on him or anything. And um, we used to go to this jewel box review at the Royal Theater where a jewel met, box review. That's yeah. what it was called, and men impersonating like women. Uh, oh, we used to a go drag to show. Yeah. But they call it that then. But they didn't call it that. <laughs> well, then. that's what it was. And just like uh, people today, that's gay. You you can't tell them. Just of yesterday, you can tell them because they switch. They right. They hang up. Mm -hmm. So you said back in the day they used to switch. Yeah, right. like they switch kids. now. Yeah, but I mean it wasn't like to me then. You they know they like, like you said they held their hand like up and they were just switching around. <laughs> but, uh, today they, they still switch, but they don't. It's not that obvious. They, right. There's their pronoun they again. But what I mean is they don't act like they did years ago. So you're saying that back in the day it was obvious who was gay and who <laughs> wasn't gay, right? And even though well, there's still gay people today that switch around, but they don't act like the gay people did back then. Because like you said, they held their hand up and, you know, they would be switching. Like their wrist was broke. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
So then, what do you want to say? We go to Jewel Box Review every year when they came, like the rules they hate us. So straight men used to go to the the drag show. Well, we were teenagers, so it was a bunch of teenagers because they used to have James Brown and all them singers yeah, so up sure. there. When the Jewel Box Review came, you know, it would be up there maybe like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We'd go up there to that, but we didn't really. I mean, we knew that they were women acting like men acting like women. It was just fun. But we thought it was just, you know, for that show. We mm -hmm. didn't know that they really That's who were. they really were. Right. So what you say about somebody on your side of the family? What? We had three um, gay people on my side of the family. On my mother's side of the family. Who? You don't know them. <laughs> right. So, uh, and they, nobody never made fun of them. They ain't had a problem when they was born, you know. But did y'all talk about it? Did anybody no, talk, about talk about it? talk about it. But see, that's a part of what's we different. Not word, but they was our family. We ain't talk about it. But that, but that's that's kind of different though, because you're saying that back then it was obvious who was gay, but even though it was obvious, nobody discussed it. I guess because it wasn't in their family, and like the guy that used to come up here, Tiggle, that's what his name was, who? Tiggle from South Baltimore. You know him? You probably know Maybe him. I do. But anyway, um, but nobody, you know. Truthfully, I didn't even know what it meant. What they said, you know, he was gay. I, who, I didn't know. You know, I was just young. Well, let me say this. I, I'm gonna say two things. People still do hide now. Obviously, you know, right. this whole phenomenon of DL or down low or whatever or being in the closet. Period. I think that at some point we all were DL because that's the period in which you're in the closet right. until you transition into being who you really are. But as black people, we We've traditionally taught ourselves how to hide and sneak and to pass and to get by. Now people are trying to sneak and pass and get by as straight, where back in the day, fair-skinned black people were trying to pass and get by as white. Mm. So we come, historically, we've always learned how to pass. Right. So that's not really far-fetched. Here's one memory that I have. I remember we were down on... Baltimore Street at Mama's house, my grandmother. We were all sitting outside, and I don't remember who all was there, but I remember you were out there, Ma, and I remember Gloria being out there, and I don't know who all else was out there. It was like your sisters and brothers outside. And we were all standing outside, and I remember this white van came down Baltimore Street, and they were blowing the horn. Whoever, I couldn't even picture the person's face, but they were mm -hmm. blowing the horn, and they waved, and you all wave, hey, how you doing? Everybody waved. And then as soon as that van went down the street, I remember you saying, that old big sissy. <laughs> it, was some, it was somebody in there. You said, that old big sissy. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh my God, <laughs> did she just say that? I don't even know who that was. I don't know who it was either. I can still see the van like it was yesterday. I can see the van, but I never really saw who was in the van. And somebody said, some, one of the, your siblings was like, who was that? And you said his name. I have no idea. And then this other guy, Billy, they lived across the street from us. And uh, Is that the one you got gay. the book for? The first book? Mm, that you never gave it to? Book, right. You know, he used to come over to the house and Glory, he kind of was like Gloria's age. But, you know, we knew he was gay, but nobody never said anything to him, you know. See, gay folks have always been around. Yeah. But, you know, he, he act like he, you know, he was real school woman. But, you know, he was a, um, he was a, uh, he had male and female, um, over. 
Oh, he was, um, well, now they call it intersex. Back in the day, they called it a hermaphrodite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, male, female. Oh, really? Yeah. He used to tell y'all that? Well, I, well, I heard other guys saying that that's what, that's what he had. Oh. Y'all sure got a lot to say at the end. Well, you did a whole lot of talking, so, and we had to kind of stay on point to what you were talking about. Oh. Mm. Well, play it back. Let's see how it sounds. This podcast was brought to you by Green to Clean Professional Carpet Cleaning Services. Visit them at g2clean.com.
This podcast was brought to you by Green to Clean Professional Carpet Cleaning Services. Visit them at g2clean.com.